Today, though, we are in Romans chapter 4. And Romans is such a loaded book, right? We could easily take words, and sometimes preachers do that, right? They take a single word in, in the book of Romans and could spend four weeks on it. You know, a word like propitiation or uh, justification or imputation, all these Asians that are so loaded with wonderful things. And there's folks like John Piper who have taken a month to cover a single verse at a time. But sometimes we miss things when we do that. My tendency is to do that more so than what I'm going to do today. Today we're going to look at a larger chunk of Scripture because sometimes, you know, we forget, especially in a book like Romans, that was written as one chunk, no verses, no chapters, just a letter written to believers. And so sometimes we need to take the time and to, to look at that chunk. And we're going to do that today by reading Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. This passage has been incredibly powerful to me in my own ministry. There are times that that I needed to be reminded of what faith is really all about. Those days when it is lonely, when it is difficult, when it is a struggle. And you need to be reminded of what faith is really all about. Now before we understand 13 through 25, we have to understand the beginning of chapter 4. Let me read to you just a a small little bit here in verses 2 and following. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, if he was justified, there's that word justification that I mentioned briefly a moment ago. Justification is this legal term where we are made right before God. In other words, we, we've been declared innocent. We are no longer guilty, but we are now innocent before God. So if we are justified, if we are made innocent before God by our own works, then we've got something to boast about. Hey, look what I've done. I've got three kids. Something kids are good at is boasting, right? Right? Because we encourage them. We want to encourage them. And that's what my kids do. They boast. Look at how I did this. Look at how I did that. Look at how well I'm doing this. And it's good. But when it comes to justification before God, we have nothing to boast about. Verse 3 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted, some of you might have credited, counted to him as righteousness now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness so what does that mean what does faith mean where do we get this idea of faith from well that's what we're going to study today in verses 13 through 25. So let's go ahead. We're going to read the passage. We're going to pray. And then we're going to study it. So Paul writes. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring. 
that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken of faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And here's the key. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. A lot there. A lot there. We're not going to cover it all. It's just not going to happen. But let's pray that God might use this time. Our Father in heaven, your word is so powerful, so strong, and yet so often we don't hear it. We just listen to the words and then we move on with our lives. Father, my prayer is that your spirit might come, might illumine our minds and our hearts with your word using your spirit to change us, not just to give us information, but to truly transform who we are in you. And Father, we pray for the one who teaches, for his sins there are many, and anything that's not your truth, may it fall away never to be thought of again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My sister-in-law is uh, a wonderful young woman. She loves Jesus, has never known a day that she didn't. And she grew up with a dream. She grew up with a dream to be a mom, to be a wife. She grew up thinking someday she'd meet that man of her dreams, she'd fall in love, they'd get married, they'd have kids. And that's what would be her focus. But for a long time it didn't happen. She went off to college yeah, little school up in Iowa, lots of great guys, but nothing really happened. Didn't meet that man, didn't fall in love, didn't start the family. Eventually she went off to school, or <clears throat> went off to work for the first time. She was a school teacher. And she went off to Miami, which is funny because she, if you knew my sister-in-law, she's more the Dutch Calvinist that you'd find in Iowa than the wild folks you find in Miami. (laughs) 
Not to suggest that Dutch Calvinists aren't wild at times. I have a lot of friends that are Dutch Calvinists, I can say that. But lo and behold, there in Miami, she didn't meet anyone either. She didn't meet that man. She didn't fall in love. She didn't start that family. She came back to St. Louis, which is where my wife and I are both from. She started working there. Lived down the street, practically, from Covenant Seminary, full of godly, young, single men. She didn't meet that man. She didn't fall in love. She didn't start that family. What do you say to someone like that? Maybe that describes some of you. It's okay. It still might happen. Be encouraged. God has a plan for your life, right? We say all these things. Now I can say with great joy that a few years ago, she was in her late 30s. She didn't meet a man. He was eight years younger than she was. They fell in love. And their little boy, Trent, now is about a year and a half old and doing wonderful. We say, praise the Lord. God has fulfilled something in her, right? Now, what, if, what do we say if that person's 90 years old? And that person says to you, I just know God has told me I'm supposed to have a child and that child's going to be the, the beginning of many nations. And you sort of shake your head. Right, right. You don't encourage them. You don't try to tell them that there is still hope because you say what? There is no hope. But that's what we have here. We have a woman who is 90 years old and had been told, you will have a child that will go on to be the beginning of many nations. Hope when there is no hope. What do we tell somebody like that? Now, today we're not having God speak to us in the way that Sarah and Abraham were spoken to. So, of course, that didn't happen to you. But sometimes we have this feeling that, hey, God has told me, God wants me to have this. God says I'm supposed to have this thing. And I believe it. Did he? God does make promises to us. But it may not be the promises that we think that they are. They are different promises. You see, we say that we believe in God, but we don't live like we do. We say we believe that God is going to do things for us, but we don't ever actually live like it. <clears throat> I don't know if there's anybody here today that's an atheist. Part of me hopes that there, that there are people here that are atheists. That are asking questions and you're wondering to yourself, what is this Christianity thing all about? But I'll tell you one thing, I meet very few real atheists. As most chaplains will tell you, there are very few atheists in a foxhole. In other words, when the going gets really tough, people are seeking out that bigger source of hope. They want it. Right? But what we do have a lot of are practical atheists. 
That term is not original to me. I heard that from somebody else. They talk about practical atheism. Practical atheism is saying that you believe in God, but you live like you don't. In other words, you don't live like you really believe in the promises of God. You live very differently from that. You don't live with faith. So what is faith? People talk about in scripture, there are definitions of faith. And usually people go to Hebrews for that definition of faith. But I I prefer Romans 4.21. Faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. You see, that's what faith is. Faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. So let's break down faith a little bit. Let's start beginning at looking at what is the object of our faith. We think about where we put our faith. What is the object of our faith? A friend used to always tell me, keep the faith, brother. And he'd always hold up his fist just like that. Keep the faith, brother. He was not a Christian, by the way. Interestingly enough, his name is Theo, though. Which means God, okay, in Greek. He'd always tell me, keep the faith. I always wanted to ask him, faith in what? Where should we have our faith? Where, what should be the object of our faith? Let me put it this way. Kent Hughes writes about this in his commentary on Romans. I'm going to read it to you. He says, Some have had strong faith in thin ice, but did not live to tell about it. They actually died by faith. Can you understand that? We're getting winter time. We don't have... I grew up in the Midwest... Where Ryan grew up in Michigan, you get frozen ice ponds. Maybe you skate on and you play That seems foreign to us here. But you, you, you might skate, you play on them, you do things. But sometimes if the, thinnest, the ice is too thin and you don't realize it, you step through that ice. That's putting your faith in thin ice and your faith is in a weak object. And you can die by faith. Let me continue on with Hughes' quote. He says, Or to use another example, I may leave church next Sunday with the utmost faith that my car will get me home because it looks okay. However, if someone removes my hubcaps and lug bolts, then replaces the hubcaps, my faith will be to no avail. The wheels will fall off. On the other hand, if I have little faith in my car and drive it with trepidation, but no one is fooled with it, I'm perfectly safe despite my weak faith because the object of my faith is strong. Okay, do you understand now when we talk about the object of our faith, it is that object to which where we put our faith. Okay? Verse 16 and eight, uh, through 18 says, That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations, as he, had, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In other words, Abraham put his faith in the one who made the promise to him. Let me ask you a question. Did Abraham ever put his faith in himself? Yes. In case you're wondering. Remember he was told, he was given this promise, you shall be the father of many nations. You shall have a child. Well, it wasn't happening, was it? Was it going really according to plan? So what did Abraham do? He took matters into his own hands. And his wife said, hey, I got an idea. I've got this servant over here. Why don't you have a child with her? Okay. Abraham was a little too quick to say yes to that, wasn't he? How'd that work out for him? Did they have a child? Yes. Was it a disaster? Yes. You see, he, put, he made the object of his faith himself. And he didn't, put the, he didn't make the object of his faith the one who made the promise to begin with. So let me ask you a second question. Where does your faith lie? Because most of the time our faith lies somewhere within ourselves. Maybe it lies in our education. If, if, if we only get the right education, then things are going to be okay. My wife and I are believers in education. We both have a master's degree. We believe in education, but let me tell you, our hope does not lie in our education. We will encourage our children to do the best that they can in school. We will encourage them to go as far as they can in school, but we will never tell them that their hope lies in their education. And we do that all the time. We do it to our children like crazy. And we lose what happens when things go wrong with their education. We lose hope. We feel like a dream has died. We lose hope. Or maybe you put your, your, your faith in a spouse. Maybe a spouse that you have or maybe a spouse that you dream of having. If, if things were just right with them, someone just recently told me, and the, the couple's in uh, turmoil right now, and she even said, I put my hope in my husband. He was the object of her faith, that he would make things right, and he didn't make things right at all. He made a lot of things wrong. And guess what? Our education and our spouse's and our children and so many other things are going to make things wrong because that's the wrong place to put our faith. Maybe it's the system. I've known people who put their faith in a lawsuit to come. It's the wrong place. Maybe it's in your work. But God has never promised us a spouse. God has never promised us a job. God has never promised us an education. He makes promises. We'll talk about those later. So those should not be the objects of our faith. Second, let's look. Now we've looked at the object of our faith, which is the Lord. Where's the source of our faith? You see, most of us are going to say, we're the source of our own faith. I have faith. 
right? I have faith. I'm the one who has it. So we think we're the source of our own faith. I know I have often felt that way. Well, if only I had greater faith, then I would be okay. Then I wouldn't suffer these problems that I have a tendency to suffer if I just had greater faith. And someone the other day said to me about their mother-in-law who was sick, and he said a comment along the lines of, if only I had greater faith. And since he was suffering, I didn't want to put him, you know, I just said, well, maybe God has another plan. We think we are the source of our own faith. Again, we look at verse 16. It says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And verse 29 of chapter 3 of Galatians says this, and if you are Christ, that, by the way, is a beautiful thing. We, there's a whole month of sermons right there. If you are Christ, if you are united to Christ, that's one of Paul's favorite Things to talk about is being united to Christ. If you belong to Christ, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And we go back, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest in grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Do you see what's happening here? What we have here is that we find that faith is a gift of grace from God and it is not from ourselves. And so that when we get into despair and we begin to think, I cannot make it any longer, I do not have the faith to get through this, we can remember that faith that we had before was never from us to begin with. And that gives us hope when there is no hope. I said that word earlier is imputation. Imputation is where God, we are first imputed the guilt from Adam in his sin. It's laid upon us. But then in Christ we are imputed his righteousness. His righteousness, not our righteousness, not our goodness, not our own works that we can boast in, has been laid upon us like a robe. given to us the imputation of Christ's righteousness a couple great men of the faith in historically speaking Martin Luther and John Bunyan when they finally discovered the imputed righteousness of Christ for themselves it was the one of the greatest life-changing experiences that they ever had you see sometimes we hear words like imputation propitiation and what happens our minds shut off Ugh. What's he talking about? But once you understand the concepts, it will free you. It will free you. And the imputation of Christ's righteousness upon Martin Luther, he said this. Martin Luther, I don't know how many of you have heard this story, but the first time as a priest that he went to do the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, He was so overwhelmed with his own guilt, his own sinfulness, that he went outside and threw up 
before he could do the Eucharist. That's how overcome with his own guilt that Martin Luther was. And he says this. Luther said it was like entering a paradise of peace with God. A paradise of peace with God. That sounds pretty good. To know that no longer it is about your righteousness. That it is no longer about what you can do and about your works. But what about God has done in you? A paradise of peace with God. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. By the way, I was, I was told a couple of years ago that the most read book written in English is Pilgrim's Progress. So if you haven't read it, you need to read it. You've got to be part of the crowd, right? Oh, that's, that's a great one to be a part of the crowd with, by the way. <laughs> a lot of bad things. But that's a good one. Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan, in there, he, he, uh, you know, he uses allegory and not very subtle allegory. <laughs> the main character's name is Christian, okay? And uh, Christian carries around this huge weight, this huge burden upon his back. And he takes it with him wherever he goes. An event, but he's trying to get beyond yonder, yonder wicked gate. It's been a while since I've read it. So that he can unload his burden upon Christ. You see why Bunyan talks about that? It's because he experienced it. He experienced the unloading of years of spiritual torture and uncertainty. When he dumped that load onto Christ. When he realized that he was not the source of his faith. And the source of his own righteousness. But it was a gift from his Lord. And until you understand that Christ is the source of your righteousness. You will continue to carry around the burden of the law. Which brings what? What does Paul tell us? It brings us wrath. It brings us wrath. It is by that righteousness that you have faith. Okay? The object of our faith is the Lord. The source of our faith is the Lord. But what does it mean? Where does that bring us there? And that brings us to the fruit of faith. And to understand the fruit of faith, we have to understand a, a passage in Scripture in Genesis chapter 22. And Genesis 22 is one of those passages that we really struggle with often as Christians. That maybe sometimes we're embarrassed by. It's one of those passages maybe that we think to ourselves, I wish that wasn't in there. And that's that passage where, remember, God tells Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. You're going to have a kid. And it's going to be the beginning of, of millions of people. Like sand on the seashore and stars in the heavens. And then it, he has a child, a boy named Isaac. 
And Isaac is born and he's growing up and he's healthy. And he's doing well. And then God comes to him and says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. I've got three kids. Two boys and a girl. I can't begin to imagine that thought. Of God coming to me and saying, I want you to sacrifice one of your kids. And even as, and Abraham agrees, he responds in faith. And even as Abraham and Isaac are ascending the hill to where the sacrifice is going to take place, and poor little Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrifice, and he doesn't know, and he says, and he says Dad, who's, where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say? The Lord will provide. And in one sense, that's true. No matter what, that was true. Because the Lord provided Isaac. The Lord will provide. And they set up the, the, for the fire. And as Abraham is prepared to do the unthinkable, God calls out to him. Raise your eyes. And there in the thorns in a bush was a ram. There was the sacrifice. It's a hard story. Because we don't want to think that God would do that, would ask that of us. But what he does is he responds in faith. Abraham, that is. That's the fruit of his faith, his his response. John Piper writes this about that incident, which I find very helpful. And and so I think you will too. Piper writes this. He says, The one and only foundation or basis of God's commitment to give Abraham the inheritance of the world is God's own righteousness provided for Abraham through Jesus Christ and credited to Abraham through faith alone. This is what we've been talking about. That is the basis of Abraham's confidence that God will surely make him heir of the world. But the authenticity of Abraham's faith must be demonstrated by acts of obedience, like the one in Genesis 22, so that it will be manifest that his faith is real and not dead faith, like we talk about James chapter 2, or devil faith, or useless faith, also in James chapter 2, this obedience that comes from faith is not the basis of his confidence. Okay? This, let me read that again. Because this obedience that comes from faith is not the basis of his confidence. If it was, where would his faith lie? In himself. They are the fruit of his confidence. And the fruit does not make the tree good. The tree makes the fruit good. The faith comes first from God. And from that flows living out life and faith. That's where fruit comes from. 
You see, God is able to do what he has promised, and he promised to Abraham to be the father of many nations. But we don't want to listen to God's promises sometimes. My kids are starting to get older, and so I don't do this as much as I used to, but I loved when they were little, and you throw them up in the air, you know, and you pick them up and just throw them up in the air, and they love it. But, you know, at some point they reach an age where they know that that's what you're about to do. And they have a grasp of reality that they didn't have before. And the idea of falling is greater than it was before. And what I've experienced, even though I, by the way, have never dropped any of my children doing this. (laughs) So there is no reason for their fear. But I will throw and they try to grab on. Ah! Grabbing onto your shirt. Their faith is weak. And in their, in, in their weakness of their faith, they make the situation what? More dangerous. Much worse. Than if they would just let me throw them up in the air. What does it mean for us to live in faith? To allow God to throw us up in the air and to stop making ourselves the object of faith, the source of faith. And to trust Christ for our faith. One of the mistakes, I said this earlier, that we make is that we decide what God has promised us. The number of times that I've had people tell me, God has promised me a husband. No, he hasn't. And that's hard to hear. God has promised me children, but he hasn't. And that's really, really hard to hear. God has promised me this job. No, he did not. But he does make promises to us. He does make promises to us that are greater than spouses and children and jobs. What does he promise us? In Romans 8, 28, he promises to work everything together for your good. And when you're in the midst of pain, and when you're in the midst of suffering, and when your spouse that you do have has cancer, or your spouse just passed away, your child, you just lost a child. And you hear that verse, and what do you want to do? You want to punch the guy that just said it in the face, don't you? When I preached on that verse, I about lost it completely. But he promises to work everything together for your good. But it's not necessarily what we think it should look like. What else does he promise? In Matthew 28, he promises to be with you to the end of the age. That's a good one. Because I need that promise. In Isaiah 41, he promises to help you and strengthen you and uphold you. Because those times when we want to punch somebody in the face for Romans 8, 28... We need Isaiah 41, don't we? 
In Philippians 4, he promises to meet all your needs. Again, that may not look like what you want it to look like. There are many times it doesn't look like what I want it to look like. And then last, the last one I want to tell you, Philippians 1. He promises to bring you safely to heaven. Amen to that. I don't know, some of you might be here today and you don't know that promise at all. And it's time to let go. God wants to do great things with you and it's time to let go and let him do great things with you, through you, in you. To know the freedom that John Bunyan and Martin Luther and I know, and many of you know, that it's not up to me. I am a fallen, messed up creature. But I have the robe of righteousness laid upon me through the mercy and grace of God, and I want that for you as well. And if you, if you don't know that, I want you to come and talk to me about that. Or talk to Ryan or one of the, elders, one of the other elders here about that. There's a story about a boy named Todd, a little three-year-old boy. And he lived in Rhode Island, really close to the coast. And he had seen kites before but he had never flown a kite and so he said to his dad let's fly a kite let's go down to the beach fly a kite and he's looking at the kite so they go down and he's looking at the kite and he's a little unsure about this kite how is this thing going to fly I mean look at it and his dad encouraged him And assured him, it's going to fly. So they picked up that kite and they started running. And as they let the string out and that kite took off, it was a wonderful thing. And that boy, Todd, said, I knew it would fly, Daddy. You said it would. Past summer, I was outside of a like a Christian store that sold, you know, decorations for the home and so forth. And sometimes those things can be cheesy, right? Sometimes they can be really, really good, though. And I saw this one, and it said this. Faith is not believing that God can. It is knowing that God will. 